Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning. Do you use cycling as a form of transportation, as an extreme sport, to form corporate bonds as a replacement to golf? Or do you avoid cycling because you think it's too dangerous? This morning, we're talking about the world of cycling. In studio, Paul Hayes is CEO of Beachhouse, the PR firm that works with technology companies. Councillor Oshin Smith is a Green Party councillor for Dunleary. And first on the line this morning to join us is Robert Wright. He's the transport correspondent for the Financial Times and author of The Invisible Visible Man blog. Um, Robert, you did a fantastic feature in the Financial Times Weekend magazine recently about cycling and how how safe it is, because I think the number one thing that puts people off cycling is the worry that it's dangerous. So what did you discover about the safety of cycling? Well, really, the main thing to bear in mind about cycling is that the health benefits way, way outweigh the risks. A figure that I saw some time ago and, and which I referred to in, in the piece in the FT weekend that you that you kindly mentioned is that for the average person who cycles into middle age, and I'm afraid to say that I've reached that point by now, you get an extension of your life expectancy of about two years on average. Now, there are obviously risks from crashes. In the UK, there's a, there's a risk. It's, it's actually a slightly lower risk per mile than for pedestrians. Obviously, people tend to cycle further, so the figures aren't directly comparable. But uh, th- th- there is a risk. And on average, somebody who cycles can expect to lose about two months of life expectancy to crashes. Obviously, those figures are slightly deceptive in that there's a small number of people who lose many decades of their lives and nearly everybody else gets the extended life expectancy. But but the basic message is that it is a rational thing to ride a bicycle for transportation. That's part of why I do it. I guess the main reason really is that I just enjoy doing so. But it is a rational decision to, to do this. And when are cyclists most vulnerable? Well, the most dangerous bit of any cycle journey is the intersections. And and this makes sense when you think about it. I mean, I, I got knocked off my bike in February 2009 in London by somebody who wasn't paying enough attention, who turned into a side street without looking, turned across my path and took me out. That's an extremely typical collision for a cyclist. And that's really why cities, when they are trying to do things to encourage cycling, which a lot of cities are doing, I know that Dublin's done that, London's done it, New York, where I was recently living, has been doing it in a rather half-hearted way as well. When you're doing something about this, what you really need to do is do something about the intersections to try to take out the risk of collisions there. What can you do? Well, in London, what has happened is amid great controversy, uh, Boris Johnson, the outgoing mayor, put in cycle superhighways, two-way cycle paths next to main roads. And what they did in London is they removed all turns across those cycle superhighways. As a cyclist, you're never moving at the same time as vehicles are on a conflicting movement with you. And I've got to say, having been cycling for four years up till July in New York, where there isn't similar standard of provision, the great thing is it's just so much more relaxing. You feel so much less stress riding along these these cycle superhighways. That must have been hugely controversial because I can just imagine how awkward that must make life for drivers who've perhaps had a particular route to a particular place and suddenly they've got to reroute everything. Well, just before I came to talk to you, I was dealing with an angry email about uh, an, <laughs> another piece I've, piece I've written about this saying how, how appalling this, this whole idea is. 
I mean, in London, one of the main things has been that the roads in London have been congested for so long that there are very long peaks. I, I think it's probably similar from, from what I remember of my trips to Dublin, that there are the roads are so congested that you don't just have a peak hour in the morning or, or in the evening. You have very long peaks so that the motor traffic is constantly congested. And because the cycle superhighways are mainly catering to commuters, they get very, very busy. I mean, I, I cycled to work this morning and, and the, I was in a peloton of about 30 people going down the north-south cycle superhighway. So they get very busy for relatively short periods of time. And um, a lot of the rest of the day, you've got a bunch of angry people sitting in, in vans and lorries and so on, looking across the divider at uh, a relatively empty cycle superhighway and fuming about the people who put it in. Yeah, well, that's like the bus lanes, isn't it? Well, exactly. And and there's there's no point to this kind of provision if it doesn't provide a free-flowing journey. I mean, that's precisely the reason they're put in and, you know, that, that's the entire point of them. But it is also, you know, it is also understandable, I suppose, if you're sitting stationary in a vehicle and you look across a nice bit of pristine tarmac that doesn't look very heavily used at that particular time, Perhaps it's a natural human instinct to wish that one had access to that bit of that bit of tarmac. What about pollution? Well, pollution. A lot of people worry about pollution and cycling, and the, the figures we looked at showed that really it's not ultimately something you really need to worry about. It's not. It's not pleasant, but but frankly, we found that you'd have to cycle pretty much all day in some of the world's most polluted cities for the risks of cycling, the risk from pollution you breathe in during cycling, to outweigh the the health benefits you'd you'd get from riding. So it's not. I mean, the great thing, of course, is that cycling can help to reduce that pollution because if you're transferring people from motor vehicles to bicycles the air is getting cleaner that's part of why places like London are encouraging cycling it's not just that it reduces congestion if you put people on more space efficient vehicles it also potentially reduces reduces pollution but pollution for cyclists is is not really a, a big health issue. And just a final word actually on motorcyclists um, because I noticed in, in your um, article you had compared data for cyclists, pedestrians and motorcyclists and I think the fatalities for cyclists and pedestrians were relatively even. The injuries for cyclists were about three times for pedestrians but riding a motorcycle is really dangerous. Well, uh, this is something I've often wondered about. I'm relatively convinced of the basic rationality of human beings. and I'm not. Um, You're very well, brave. Okay, so I, I, <laughs> I, I think it's easy to miss how rational people's choices are, and uh, I'm, I suppose I'm particularly convinced of that because a lot of people think I'm mad to ride a bicycle and I think I, I'm doing so rationally. So that perhaps gives me a, a rather sunnier view of that than if I were looking at some other areas of human activity. It's pretty hard to fit the idea that lots of people ride motorbikes into that overall sunny framework because it is an enormously risky activity. One has the risks of being on a bicycle that one's on a two-wheeled machine that's relatively easy to knock over, combined with all the extra kinetic energy that one gets from going much faster. So it's it is an enormously risky activity. It's an activity that probably ought to be safer, given that lots of people are going to undertake it. I used to notice, and this is purely anecdotal, that when the Financial Times had a smoking room, there was a big overlap between the people who smoked and the people who rode motorbikes. Um, it, it's perhaps something that it's perhaps an activity that attracts people who are risk takers. But on the other hand, 
obviously if people people want to do it it should be safer um a lot of motorcycle crashes aren't the fault of the the motorcyclist so so this is the reason why i mean in the uk there have been a lot of um public campaigns about looking out for motorcyclists because they are a group that's that's very much at risk and it would be a, it would be a fantastic thing in um both ireland and the uk if we could if we could bring down that that rate because there's a there's a very sad annual toll there Robert Wright, Transport Correspondent for the Financial Times and author of the Invisible Visible Man blog. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. And you can access that um, article online. And Oshin Smith, I think you were saying it's it's not behind the paywall. You're actually able to read it if That's you right. like. Yep. Yeah, so well done. Uh, some free content, which is good. But otherwise, always buy the Financial Times. OK, Paul Hayes. Now, we'll be coming back to the whole cycling as a mode of transport. But cycling has also become a thing that business people do, particularly people in your field, which is technology. Tell me about that. What's going on? Well, it's it's a thing in the last few years, and it's se- seemingly it's replaced golf. Uh, and it's uh, I think it's it's what's getting us from the age of forty to sixty now. We've just decided that this is what's going to transition us, and then we can get to golf, which is utterly boring in my view. I'm a golfing orphan; haven't seen my parents in years. Uh, and uh, the roads are are cluttered now on Saturdays and Sundays out in Enniskerry, and I know it drives people mad with mammals, middle-aged men in lycra, slightly overweight, puffing up hills. And they're very different, I think, to the commuter cyclists, you know. And I am one of those as well in town. But you almost have to treat them differently. Um, the most the most interesting thing about them is, you know, most of these guys are riding 10 grand bikes and they've paid huge road tax already. And you get a lot of road rage from motorists going, oh, I paid my road tax, get out of my way. But you have to treat those bikes like they're a car. You have to give them 1.5 metres clearance. You have to get around them. And if they're riding two abreast, they're doing you a favour as a motorist. They're showing you how to treat them like a car. But do you think that drivers are harder on those kind of cyclists than they would be on someone that's, say, cycling along freely, you know, obviously maybe going into town to do their shopping or something like that, that yeah. they, they might resent them or they might think that they're somehow a professional cyclist and therefore capable of withstanding a car driving to them much closer? Yeah, I, th- I, I think so. We, we try to pretend that we are, but obviously none of us really are. Just uh, fat guys with cushioned cores riding around the, the and hills of Wicklow. as a form of corporate bonding, mm-hmm. do you think people are doing it deliberately in order to get in on something? Or is it because, look, it's just something their pals are doing and then they try it and then they like it? Um, I, think, I think it's a bit of both. I think they're trying to... They're realizing that it's where the money is. It's, uh, you know, some of the highest net worth individuals in this country are out there sawing the undercarriage off themselves every Saturday or Sunday, maybe for some deep seated Nama took my virility away or whatever. But I, you know, you see them out there and they're doing it and it works for them mentally, I think, as much as physically. In fact, uh, physically, it doesn't seem to be working for them at all. They have what I like to call the cushioned core. You know, no, no abs are being exposed, but at least they'll be all right when they fall off. Uh, it doesn't do much for the belly, but it does a lot for the mind and it's a lot of fun. And it's a thing that can be both solitary and collaborative. You can be with the group as much as you want and you can have time to think and you can't be on your phone and everything else. That's, that's why I'm attracted to it. So tell me a little bit more about that, how it makes you feel. Um, I didn't realise I needed it until I started. And then I realised we're so connected and so hyper-connected, but actually productivity is down because we don't think anymore. Or we certainly don't have space to think anymore because everything happens at the speed of light. Whereas on a bike, you certainly shouldn't be, uh, you know, connecting to email or tweeting or anything else. And it's an interesting space where you can block everything else out. And also, it's kind of guilt-free. You can get away with it in the boardroom and at home because it's hard. Unlike golf, I think, you know, you're not, you really are 
breaking yourself going up those hills for whatever deep-seated psychological reasons we could probably go into elsewhere. But, uh, you know, people kind of forgive you because they know what you're doing is hard. Most people enter it by doing the charity cycles. I personally got involved with Paris to Nice, which is an amazing charity cycle and something I never thought I'd be able to do. Uh, and then after a couple of those, you're kind of, you can't really tap your friends anymore. So then you just start going out with groups of people. And it's great to have people that you can just ride alongside. We're now currently doing cycles all over the world for mix, you know, in the technology space, all the venture capitalists are cycling, all the founders, all the people that have had big exits. And we're doing them in the west of Ireland and we're doing them in California. And it's it's uh, it's great fun. And it's kind of calorie neutral. Well, in my case, <laughs> calorie positive. <laughs> but why? Surely you're getting fitter and losing weight. Um, well, when you cycle 100 miles a day, yeah, it's about 5,000 calories. But it turns out you can eat 5,000 calories in a day if you want. And uh, we tend, you know, I think neutrality is is, is very zen. That's, that's where it's at. And sorry, just one more question. I'll go to Shane Smith then. Um, just going back to the thing about suffering and... Um, <laughs> So do you think maybe it's some kind of penance or, and that those charity cycles are kind of pilgrimage? We are atoning. They are a wheeled, drunken Camino of self-discovery. But really, it's atonement. That's that's where it's coming from. The, the, the real uh, interesting uh, thing for me is that I think cycling isn't changing. You know, cycling is as it always was. You can you get the, the, the you know, the fast mammals up the front with their talking about gears. Anyone that talks about gears can away you know that let them off and peloton and wear themselves out the fun is down the back the people who are struggling the fat lads and girls what's really interesting is in terms of women cycling because they have a natural advantage that it's all about weight it's actually not power and so little old ladies beat me up hills now when a fat guy rolls down a hill you got to get out of the way we say when a fat guy rolls make a hole uh, because that's our only that's our only revenge that we can go down the hill at 70 miles an hour um, so I'm a little pixie then should I give it a go I we were cycling in the west of Ireland last Last weekend and uh, the smallest, littlest girl who didn't even know how to change her gears, who'd never been on a bike before, breezily passed by all of us because she was half our weight. And we're all carrying check-in bags and carry-on bags of extra weight up the hills. And it's 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 soul-destroying, but it's good for us. Maybe I have to reform some of my views then, Paul. Um, is Councillor Andrew Montague on the line? I am indeed, yeah. Tell me about your involvement in Dublin Bikes and how that's all going, because that's very far away from this idea of the, the corporate guy out there trying to do his atonement or his zen or raise money or make contacts or whatever it is he's doing. Dublin Bikes is quite a different philosophy. Yeah, I first proposed the bike scheme way back in 2004 when there was only one or two other cities in the world that had a bike scheme and I thought it would be a great fit for Dublin. And at the time, there was a lot of cynicism. People thought it would never work. They'd all be stolen and thrown in the river. But what what uh, captured my imagination was the fact that the other cities had solved these problems. They had faced uh, issues of bike theft and managed to find ways around it. So I was pretty confident when we uh, started the bike scheme that we'd hold on to our bikes and that's how it's turned out. We, in our first year, we lost one bike. And funnily enough, that bike uh, was stolen and brought to a bike shop and asked to be stripped down. And the bike shop said, thanks very much. We'll do that. And went in the back and called the guards and we got the bike. Isn't back that fantastic? Yeah. So civic society is civic. It is out there. Now, in global terms, give me some numbers just to illustrate to listeners how successful Dublin Bikes really has been, because it is quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's been a massive success, and uh, the city I like to compare us with is Melbourne, because they started out at the same time as us. They had about the same number of bikes as us, and they get about two to 300 bike trips a day, whereas just this week we had 18,000 trips in one day. So it just shows the phenomenal success we've had here. Now, and, and from what I understand, the key 
thing that's different for the Dublin bikes is that helmets are not mandatory. Is that the case? And tell me about how you came to that decision. Yeah, that's the, the big difference between us and Melbourne. In Australia and in Canada, cycling helmets are mandatory, but they're not mandatory in Ireland. And they have found that bike sharing schemes really don't work where the cycle helmets are mandatory. It just, it, it just doesn't make it a good fit. And so they're losing out all of those benefits from the cycling trips and uh, all the transport benefits, all the health benefits that uh, Paul was talking about earlier and Robert was talking about. So uh, I think it, it was the right decision for Dublin. Was it controversial? Did you get much resistance or pushback at the time? Because I know there are, and we'll be talking to a doctor later, you know, who will be saying, oh, you got to wear a helmet. You must wear a helmet. Crazy not to wear a helmet. Yeah, it, it wasn't really that controversial. I mean, people have the choice. They can wear a helmet if they want. And one of the interesting things that has come up now, and it's only recent research has shown that people who use bike-sharing bikes are actually much safer on those kind of bikes than on regular bikes, probably because they're a bit heavier and uh, so a little bit slower, and they have very good lights on them. So, like, for example, in North America, there have been 100 million trips on bike-share bikes, and there hasn't been a single fatality. You really, that's very, very safe. You know? And what's Dublin Bikes' record with injuries or fatalities? We've had uh, close to 18 million trips and there has been one fatality about five years ago. And what about injuries? Any data on the kind of injuries? We don't, unfortunately, because the data is gathered by the, uh, on injuries and that are, is gathered by the Gardaí and they don't note down what kind of bike it is. So we don't have a breakdown on Dublin bike injuries compared to other injuries. Uh, but just the research from other cities and our own, just on the fatalities is the one thing we do know. It's just a very, very low number of fatalities, much lower than on other types of bikes. Andrew, I have to leave it there for a minute now. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more on helmets after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about cycling this morning. In studio with me is Paul Hayes, CEO of Beachhouse PR, the PR firm that works with technology companies, and Councillor Oshin Smith, Green Party Councillor for Dunleary. Um, Oshin Smith, you've been waiting very patiently. Uh, many thanks. So, you know, we were talking a little bit about um, cycling as a sport, but obviously it's big benefit in public service terms is as a mode of transport. Now, how do you see cycling's future um, as a mode of transport and what do governments need to be doing in terms of infrastructure to help push it along? So I think what happened in Ireland, our history, is that in the 80s, uh, the Tour de France, the competitive cycling was the thing we were best at and people became really interested in it and everybody began to copy and uh, you know get a racing bike even when you were a kid and, and dress up in the clothes and you know you're, you're going to work in the morning it's like a time trial and I think that the Dublin bikes was a turning point it was a turning point for Dublin because suddenly you saw these bikes that had no crossbar and up to then no man would get on a, cro- on a bicycle in Ireland <laughs> that didn't have a crossbar because it was an in- insult to his manhood right so we so people got on these these weird little shopping bikes and they rode these little heavy bikes and they found, God, this is brilliant. <laughs> this is really handy. It's really easy. I can do this. And then they went down to the shop and said, I want to buy a bike and I don't want a racer. I actually want a really comfy bike. You know, and I went and bought one of those bikes at that time. And my saddle is like a mattress. It's actually got <laughs> massive, heavy iron springs. It is the most comfortable bike in the world. 
I'm sitting up in this high nelly and I am um, got the sun on my face. I came in this morning. I can't describe to you the joy that I felt as I cycled along and there was no sweat and I wasn't wearing lycra and I wasn't wearing high vis and I didn't have a little piece of polystyrene on my head. But I still had a great time and I was actually, in fact, I was talking to other people on the, on the way in and so on. So, you know, that was a change. That was this huge change from everything's about sports and competition and, you know, getting really amped up and roaring at the at the cars and all that kind of stuff. And we we changed to something. We changed to... This is a, this is actually a really this actually really makes sense and you don't have to join a special tribe now to be a to be a cyclist you know and I think all the clothing and the helmets and stuff made people feel that in order to be, to to ride a bike you had to become a cyclist and you look at that and think I don't want to become one of those people <laughs> right and when you looked at the countries like if you go to the Netherlands or Denmark you'll see that maybe a third of the trips are being done by bike and those people are not dressed up in like or they're not dressed in high vis they're wearing their normal clothes and in fact they look really good and they're on their bike and they're riding along and there are women cycling and there are young girls cycling did you know that 98% there's been a 98% reduction in the number of schoolgirls who are cycling to school since 1986 in Ireland and in fact we're at the point now where more girls drive themselves to school than cycle to school oh my god right oh no. that is it and you know um we're talking about the health benefits just to put something concrete on that uh, your chances of ovarian cancer reduce by a third if you have an active lifestyle. Really? Right? And when I'm saying an active lifestyle, that you do half an hour of exercise a day. In other words, a 15-minute cycle, maybe two kilometres in and out, right? So that is the real health effect. I mean, that, that is the real health effect. It just keeps you... And it's not just that you live longer, that you don't get these cancers, which we're so likely to get. It's that you, you enjoy the days <laughs> that you are alive. Like on the days... If, if there's a day when I, I don't cycle to work, I've got a puncture... I'm really tired and I never expected this and I don't have that energy that I have and that zest. I don't have the oxygen pumping around my blood. And whenever I'm doing a radio interview, I definitely cycle in. I cycled in this morning. I know? remember Tommy Tiernan walking to RTE to do an interview once because he said he wanted to walk the devil out of himself before the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there's an element of that. So Paul, you use cycling also as a mode of transport. Yeah. So do you feel different when you're doing yes. the different kinds of cycling. Yes, and, th- and thank God I do. I, I want to agree with Oshie. No one should be allowed to wear lycra within the canals in Dublin. It will <laughs> scar children for life. If you're not doing 100k a day, that's when you wear lycra. You don't. You can wear your normal clothes you know, in Dublin cycling around. And that's actually my favourite kind of cycling. I had the most ironic moment uh, this morning with the Dublin bus strike going on, uh, whereby I went to a Dublin bike, uh, my normal station in Portobello, and it had Wi-Fi connectivity issues. Uh, so I remember a simpler time when bikes didn't need Wi-Fi, but it's great that they do. And I love Dublin bikes. I've never met Andrew Montague, but he's my personal hero. I think he's done more to change the landscape of the city than anyone else because the volume of cyclists changes behaviour from motorists. I'm very interested from a technology point of view. We're going through the greatest change in car usership and ownership in 100 years since the internal combustion engine was invented. The biggest companies in the world in the next five years, and this isn't a cockamamie prediction, in the next five years, car ownership is going to go out the window. Self-driving cars are going to be here. Uber, Tesla, Apple and Google, the four richest companies in the world, are going to make sure that car ownership is out of the reach of normal people's pockets. And it's just going to be like having your mobile phone plan. It's SAS, There's a SaaS Society uh, conference on today. Software, what does SaaS mean? Software as a service. Most boring 
uh, acronym in the world. I think but it's up there with Internet of Things. I think it's oh yeah, IoT. That's even worse. <laughs> but I think what's going to happen is you're going to you're going to have access to a vehicle the same way you have access to a mobile phone and a plan, and you're just going to pay fifty quid a month or whatever, and that's going to change the world for cyclists because no more road rage when there's the the number one threat to cyclists is motorist behaviour and that's going to be the huge change in the next five years and then cycling is just going to flood the city and it's going to happen within five years and sorry are you saying as well that because we won't own cars that that will make us more inclined to cycle it will create demand for cycling well it may well but I think it's more that we won't either own cars or drive them Uh, And therefore, we're going to see uh, a huge behavioural change and shift on the roads. And it's going to happen within five years. I mean, Sarah, don't you think that um, it's unlikely that your children will will drive at all? I mean, Mm. I'd I'd expect that when my children grow up and they want to go somewhere in a car, they'll just press an app. A self-driving car will come around and take them to the place that That they're going. That frightens me. I mean, isn't that that obvious? And and it'll, it'll be a cost per trip. And then you've got to decide, do I want to spend the three euros on the, on the robot taxi or am I going to, am yeah, I going to cycle down? Or do I want to be in the, the Apple taxi that's much cooler than... Mm. This is the new BMW <laughs> versus Skoda debate. Am I going to get an Apple jet, taxi or am I, taxi. am I okay on the Hewlett-Packard taxi that's going to come around the corner? And it's going to be about the operating systems. It'll save the Irish rural pub as well, by the way. There'll be nothing but drunk farmers going home giving the finger to the cops <laughs> going, I'm not even driving, no, I'm that, flying. That's He's going to clean the stick out of the car. Yeah. But, Oshin, I want to go back to safety and helmets because there was this really big thing with Dublin bikes that they didn't require you to he- uh, to wear helmets and a brilliant paper written by Eileen Deegan in 2011 showed that most of the users of Dublin bikes don't wear helmets and they don't wear high vis and a lot of commuters who are only commuting a short distance don't wear helmets and don't wear high vis it's the longer you commute the yeah. more likely you are to yeah, wear yeah. stuff now when I'm talking to people, they are so um, biblical on this issue. You're you're either one or the other. You're either you absolutely must wear a helmet, you're crazy not to, or not wearing a helmet liberates you. Well, for for adults, I think it's a matter of personal choice. Mm-hmm. Like I certainly make my children wear helmets, and um, you know, I, because they're learning. And in fact, a lot of a lot of adults in Ireland are learning as well. The truth is that it was the bike scheme, and you're right to give credit to Andrew. He, he was great that brought people into that. So a lot of people are not not really sure themselves, and they're putting on helmets, and that that, that probably makes sense for them. But what's the data on helmets? How how effective they really are in the kinds of accidents that cyclists tend to have, and in the performance of the helmet itself? Yeah. So if your head is about to hit the ground. You want to be wearing a helmet. I mean, if I was going to hit you on the head with a hammer, I never would. <laughs> yeah. uh, you'd, you'd want to have a helmet on first. So if you know you're going to have an accident, then, you know, put on a helmet. That, that, that absolutely makes sense. But does it make sense to tell a whole population that they must wear a helmet before they cycle? You just heard Andrew there saying that there have been 18 million trips on the Dublin bikes. And that, that you know, that if, if he'd required helmets, that might have been, you know, 100,000. It might have been a tiny number. And we know that oh, this activity is leading to people is reducing people's chances of serious illness. We know it's reducing their, their chance of heart disease and cancer and so on. So would we really want to, uh, would we really want to make it mandatory? As right, a but are there standards for helmets? Are people wearing them properly? Are the kinds of accidents that they're having the kinds where their head is hitting the ground or are they falling off and breaking their wrist or something like that? Well, I think that for a start, um, the statistics are um, very poor. So when somebody comes into, uh, I, I work in a hospital and I collect medical statistics. 
when somebody comes into a, into emergency, the first thing you're doing is not trying to make records for the future. You're trying to you're trying to save their lives. And a lot of times, the bits of information are not well recorded. The data is is not clear. We don't know exactly how many accidents there are, and there's a lot of uh, of debate. I would say that it's not in any way settled as to the extent to which uh, a helmet helps you. But I would say that if you are going to hit your head on the ground, it makes sense. My my approach is that if it's if it's nighttime, if it's raining, I'm I'm going to put on a helmet. You know, if I'm going to if I was going to do a hundred k or something or dress up, then I, I would put on a helmet. Tell me about the experiment they did with blonde wigs and oh, how yeah. that affected how drivers behave. Yeah, and that, this is a big this is a big question. You know, so um, what is the effect on other drivers and what is the effect on you of wearing a helmet? Does it change the way you cycle and does it change the way that other drivers treat you when you're on the road, whether you're wearing a, a helmet or not? And one one researcher found that drivers would drive more closely to cyclists if they were wearing a helmet. They would automatically and subconsciously uh, decide that the risk was lower and that they could drive more closely to the, to the cyclist. And they, the researcher went further with this and noticed that the drivers were driving, giving a, a wider berth to women with long hair. So the researcher tried putting on a long blonde wig and cycling along the road and found, yes, that really works. The drivers were giving him a, a, a large berth. And his proposal was, well, what about we make a helmet with a with the blonde wig fitted on top, so then we get the best of both worlds. We get the we get the head protection, and we get the we get the get the drivers to move out of the way. You know, uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I think it might there's, catch on something. Paul, there's also there's also an airbag collar you can buy now. It's yeah. too expensive at the moment, but it it pops up if you go over a certain degree and where it goes to. I think it's a question of speed. I think if I'm going less than 10 or 15, you know, a big heavy Dublin bike, I can't get up to speed and I don't want to. I think I'm going to, you know, the danger is minimal in terms of a head injury because I'm coming off so slowly. I might do outer limb stuff. I think if I'm going fast and I've seen it happen to friends of mine, helmets save their lives. And, you know, it's it's mandatory and it needs to be there. Indeed. And after the break, we'll be talking to Dr. Paul Carroll. And I think he's going to be making that point. Velocity is the key issue when you're in an accident. So we'll be back with more on cycling after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about cycling this morning. And before the break, we were talking about the safety of helmets. And on the line now is Dr. Paul Carroll. He's a consultant in rehabilitation medicine at the National Rehabilitation Hospital. So, Dr. Paul Carroll, can you tell me what kind of injuries you see that are associated with cycling? Um, Well, I see the more severe end of the injuries that occur with cycling. So I, I would see people with brain injuries. I'd also see some people with uh, injuries to other parts of the body, such as the, the spinal cord or, or, or fractures in their limbs or injuries to their uh, chest or, or abdomen. But I particularly see people with uh, severe um, brain injuries. And are they people who have been wearing helmets, but the accident was so severe um, or of a particular nature that the helmet was no good? Or were they people that weren't wearing a helmet? There'd be a mixture. I would have to say for the people who've come under my care in the last uh, two to three years, who've had head injuries associated with, with cycling, that Probably all of them were wearing uh, cycling helmets. I would, though, infer from that that um, the uh, cycling helmet would have prevented, I suppose, or reduced the severity of the injury or even prevented the person from dying. 
presumably, or I shouldn't presume perhaps, that you are seeing more injuries coming in from cycling accidents purely because it's becoming much more popular. Is there a particular kind of person or a particular kind of cyclist who's more prone to severe accidents? Well, I've got the data from the National Rehabilitation Hospital from 2011-2014 in front of me. Again, just to say, we would see the most severely injured people in the country. Yeah. So this is a very skewed amount of data. So we do seem to observe an increase probably of about 20% trend, you know, up to about 2014, maybe 20% to 33% increase. Now, the numbers are small, so it's hard to draw, you know, clear conclusions on it. But um, just eyeballing it, there does seem to be an increase both in traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. I would say intuitively that children do have a a vulnerability if they're on the road because their cycling sense maybe isn't as developed as people who are much more experienced. And it's possible that those who are just getting on their bikes, that they could be more vulnerable. But also you could argue that those who may be on their bikes for years is always, you know, potential risk for for complacency. I think there's a clear uh, link between speed of impact and uh, severity of injury. So I guess those that cycle very fast uh, are more likely if they do have an accident or an impact with a car or or come off their bikes to hitting a pothole or something like that, that the higher velocity and deceleration that you experience, the more likely that you are to to have a a significant injury to your head or to your spine. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, look, Paul, I have to leave it there, but um, you're you're a cyclist yourself and you say wear the helmet, not worth the risk. And absolutely, and one, two messages from myself unequivocally is is re- really to consider wearing a helmet and um, trying to have, uh, I suppose, a habit of wearing a helmet. And the second, there's a lot of benefits from cycling and we should really be looking to structure our environment that it's safe for all. So that includes pedestrians, that includes children as well as older people who maybe aren't able to move as quickly or their, their senses, their sight or their hearing isn't as good. So I think there's a broader message here in terms of a safe environment for all, that all people are able to get out and participate in exercise. And that concept of shared space is exactly what we're just going to be talking about now. So Dr. Paul Carroll, thanks a million for joining us this morning. And next on the line is Tom Gray, Research Fellow in Trinity House, and he's working largely around city interactions with people. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Tom, I want you to tell me, first of all, about um, the town in the Netherlands called Drachten, I think, and an interesting experiment that their road engineer did around something called shared space. Yeah, well, I think that's quite a good example of of shared space that has been carried out, say, in the last 10 or 15 years or so. And he was quite a well-known person around the whole area of shared space, and his name was Hans Monderman. And he took a, a large, very busy intersection um, in the town and moved it from your typical, say, traffic, heavily traffic congested and, and clearly delineated space with traffic lights and pedestrian footpaths and the usual delineation, I guess, between traffic cyclists and, and pedestrians and turned it into what's called a shared space where it's a far more open environment that, where there's no clear priority between traffic or pedestrians and cyclists. In fact, where they... Probably you could see where the priorities with pedestrians as opposed to um, motorists or cyclists. That involved, I think, removing things like bollards and barriers and I think even traffic lights. And what was the effect? Did the experiment work? Well, to call it an experiment, I suppose, is one thing. But to call it really, it was a redesign. 
you know, it was a fully completed redesign of, of that space. Now, there's some very well-known footage of Mr. Monderman walking backwards in the middle of the day in, into a heavy, heavily trafficked space and cars and cyclists, you know, giving way to him as a pedestrian. And this was his way of showing that this absolutely worked. However, I guess that's used very much as advocates and proponents of, of shared space. And they use that as, a, as one of their shining examples. But some of the work we would have done over the last couple of years, particularly a project funded by the Centre for Excellence in Universal Design, looking at shared space in the Irish context, engaged with lots of, of stakeholders right across the board from the National Council for the Blind, the Irish Wheelchair Association, the National Transport Association, the Department of Transport, various stakeholders, local, local councillors, lo- local councils. And we would have found that, you know, there are real concerns about shared space with various stakeholders. So um, if you go yeah. then, if you go the other way and you go for segregated space, so segregated, yes. say, cycle paths, as it's cycling we're talking about this morning, it must be extremely difficult to retrofit those into a city like Dublin that doesn't have particularly wide streets and, you know, cars still do need to get around. Yeah, although, I mean, it is interesting when you, when you take Dublin as an example. And, I mean, the shared space idea that people talk about, again, w- referring back to Monderman in the Netherlands, w- which is a very deliberate piece of shared space. However, we see shared space happening informally all the time. I mean, you go some of the streets off Grafton Street, you know, there is a very, a very shared environment there. I mean, I, I'm a cyclist in the city, but I would drive the odd time. And if I'm in that part of the city, I know that... I, I can't just plough up that street and expect there to be no pedestrians um, crossing over. I give way naturally there. I cycle home up Georgia Street most days and I go up Dame Lane. That's largely a pedestrian lane, but it caters quite comfortably to cyclists and um, pedestrians at the same time. So like, I think it's about good design and, and it's about building in the specific needs of, of various stakeholders that use our streets and footpaths. And I think the problem with much of shared space uh, and there's, there's controversial examples in the UK over the last couple of years, is that it's probably been implemented as an ideal without real consultation with people and understanding their needs. And so I think that's a problem. So when you, when you talk about the likes of Dublin and talk about the difficulty in retrofitting into a city, we have lots of examples of shared space that actually informally that, that, all, that work quite well. It's really about a better understanding between various users and no dominant mode of transport. But there there are conflicts, there is no doubt, around shared space. I think one of the issues, and it's what you're talking about here this morning, is cycling. There are issues around cyclists and pedestrians in shared space because there is not that clear delineation. And as uh, all cyclists, as I am myself, you like to know that you have a clear road ahead of you. Um, and the idea of cycling up um, a space that a pedestrian could cross very suddenly in front of you, you know, you have to be very careful. So the shared space principle and the shared space idea, you know, it needs to be undertaken and underpinned by a universal design approach. And I guess that's, that's where the Centre for Excellence in Universal Design here in Ireland came on board um, to try and address that issue and trying to try to make it as, as an inclusive And just possible. finally, you know, I can imagine if I was in uh, a county council and you've got so many priorities to provide services, is it expensive to start providing segregated spaces for cyclists and what sense do you get from people that you might deal with in those positions in county councils as to what priority it should have? 
Well, I think the standard approach really is to provide segregated. I mean, you know, cyclists are on the road, pedestrians are on the footpath, really. So we, that's, that's, the, that's the norm, really. The level of segregation after that is, is on the road between, the, say, the, the carriageway for cars or vehicles um, and for cyclists. I mean, and really the big issue is space. I mean, we see lots of classic examples around the city of cyclopaths that are also part of the carriageway. So mm-hmm. it's, it's there, really, to, to say, here's a cyclopath. But, in fact, it's not a clearly segregated space at all. So I, I, I think the issue of, of space is a critical thing around that level of, of segregation. But, I mean, that, that's standard practice. I mean, that's, that's the safe approach, and that's probably what road engineers and, and lots of, of city councils probably would aim at in segregating cars from cyclists from pedestrians. And the, the research we looked at and the examples around shared space are, are, in fact, an interesting example of breaking that e- exact segregation down. So that's okay. kind of turning things totally on its head, in fact. Right. OK. Well, Tom Gray, Research Fellow in Trinity House, thanks a million for sharing that You're with us this welcome. morning. Oisin Smith, what's your um, views there on that idea of shared space, that you take away bollards and barriers and all this stuff, and then it just means we all have to be more alert and aware that there are other more vulnerable people out there. There are way too many signposts, and a lot of those signposts have have no no signs on them, even right. So you have uh, you have forests of poles, and uh, and in fact, when you look at a photograph of something like College Green, and you look at it from a hundred years ago, you think, oh my god, when they put up a sign, do they not realise there's already a signpost, and they can put up another one? So you have all these kind of barriers that you can crash into. And uh, it's obviously there's way too much ugly street furniture all over the place, and there's a forest of that stuff. And I'd love to see. I'd love to see it. Paul Hayes. There's a duty of care for motorists to cyclists because they can injure them, and there's a duty of care from cyclists to pedestrians because they because they can injure them. The most dangerous thing for me is pulling off. So I break the law in two places on purpose. I will always pull off ahead at a red light junction where there's a pedestrian thing because I need five seconds head start so that the left turning car doesn't kill me. And the other thing is I will not use 90% of the bike lanes in Dublin because they will kill me. They've got drains, other manhole covers in them. They're just a half-assed attempt to call it a bike lane when it's not. And I'm going to have to swerve out, which is unfair to motorists because to survive, I have to swerve out of those bike lanes. So I won't use them in the first place. We need segregation. We need it now. Not to sound like a 60s Alabama (laughs) politician, but we need it. And do you think that decision makers have it in their head yet that actually cycling is the future? No, because it's a social class thing. I think they look down. Now, maybe not because a lot of the the councillors and the administrators are cyclists themselves, but this is social class. People think it's broke students and people who can't afford cars and people that pay big road tax feel, I own the road, I'm paying for the road, there you go. The new reality is that the highest net worth individuals in the country are cycling and now everyone's going to cycle and it's going to change because car ownership is going to change and therefore there's going to be less rage, less ownership, less hierarchy and bikes are going to just become the new norm. And Ashwin Smith, of course our dear leader Taoiseach Kenny is a cyclist himself. You know, do you think the balance is going to shift in favour of cyclists away from vehicles? I don't think it's going to change until all the influential people in society who make policy uh, stop getting free parking spaces. So, for example, I'm, I have uh, a free parking space in the council. I'm the chair of the Strategic Policy Committee on Climate Change. And I'm there with all my council. We all got free, free parking. Every single TD, every single senator has not just free parking in the Doyle, free parking for life. Even if you've only been in for a month, free parking for the rest of your life in the city centre. All the senior civil servants, all the senior people from the revenue, all of these people, free parking. And there are thousands of people coming into their free parking spaces. How are those people going to make policy on transport when all of them have free parking? It's unbelievable, right? And we actually, do you know that what happened was, at one point, a law was brought in by Brian Lennon, which allowed for 
a tax on people who were providing free parking to their employees, their senior employees I in city centres. I remember that, yeah. And, you know, yeah. big, it was a big deal. The Greens pushed it through and finally it got enacted. <laughs> and do you know what? What? They never commenced it. Once you get a law passed, there has a commencement date since so you have to issue an executive order, but nobody would commence it because it would mean that somebody might have to pay for it. Well, parking. my jaw is on the floor because so, I remember so the, that coming in and I yeah. remember thinking, oh, that's good. So they just never did it. Yeah, my and I'm, you know, I, I work in a hospital as well. I also get another free parking space uh, as a result of being in the hospital. So you have all these medical workers who are dealing with people coming in every day, suffering from illness, which is due to inactivity, and all of those people are given free parking. My God. Okay, uh, Oisín Smith, Paul Hayes, thanks a million for joining me today. Bobby Kerr is live from Dingle Next. Ona Brannock and Aoife Breen researched and produced. And thank you for listening.